Well, I grew up with a family whose father was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. For years, he was stationed aboard the USS Enterprise, which was the first nuclear aircraft carrier in our fleet, commissioned in 1961. An amazing piece of machinery was recently decommissioned, and the Navy decided that they wanted her parts to live on in other ships. And so they designated her starboard anchor, weighing 25,000 pounds, to go on the new USS George Washington. 25,000 pounds? An anchor? With, with chains this big, links of chains, is massive. But then again, that's what it takes to hold in position a 95,000 ton vessel. It is this piece of equipment, this anchor, that provides stability, even in the stormiest of seas. And in a similar way, we're going to see how the promises of God rooted in the word and character of God and rooted in the past and present work of Jesus Christ are an anchor for the church. An anchor for the church in even the most tempestuous of storms. An anchor for the church to see us through, hold us steady when the storms of persecution arise. And the author of Hebrews is going to comfort us greatly this morning with this concept of stability. For when, not if, these challenging days come. And I trust that today, especially today, would be just a, a, a hallmark day of encouragement for you. A hallmark day of preparation as we look at the days ahead and realize that this is not just for the odd James Coates of the world or the occasional pastor somewhere overseas that a, a missionary writes about. But the, this is coming our way. This is the storm on the horizon. And my job, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, is to equip us. And not equip us to get in a fetal position and just you know, just bear ump under as it passes, but to delightfully receive it, patiently trust in the promises, and live large through it. Can I say that again? As the storm of persecution comes our way, we do have to bear up under, but that bearing up under is waiting patiently for the promises and living large during the storm as it passes, living loud for our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it helps to understand where we've been in this. We've got this inclusio from chapter 5, verse 11. You might want to look down to chapter 6, verse 12. And we see this top and tail with uh, bookended by the word sluggish. I want you to press on to maturity, but, but you're not doing it because you're sluggish of hearing. And then he closes in chapter 6, verse 12. I want you to imitate the faithfulness and the patience of the men who have gone before you. And don't be sluggish. And throughout this time, we saw three sections. 
He breaks away from talking about how Jesus is the eternal high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And like a good preacher, he stops and talks directly to the congregation. And he says, hey, I, I, I need you to listen up. You're willfully not hearing me. And I know it's because you see that storm on the horizon and it scares you. You're, you're willfully not feasting on the Word of God. You're putting you know, spiritual cotton in your ears. And so he exhorts them, listen up, press on to maturity. And then he gives them a warning. If you continue to drift, you must realize that drifting has a destination. And then finally he ends up in encouragement. And he says, but I don't think I'm talking about you. Because I've seen your past faithfulness, and I see your present faithfulness. But I might be talking about you. So press on, persevere towards maturity. And that's where he ends up with, and the way you press on towards maturity is to imitate those who have been faithfully, patiently waiting and trusting in the promises of God. Look back where we left off last week at that verse 12. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So I'm starting off my exposition. I'm starting off my study with this question. So, with the storms of persecution on the horizon, in what ways are Christians not to be sluggish of hearing? Because drifting does have an eternal destination. But instead, imitate the faithfulness and patience of those who received and realized the promise. You know, essentially... Okay, I believe you. I don't want to drift anymore. I want to draw near. I want to be patient. But can you tell me how? You ever find yourself doing that when you study the Word of God? I mean, those moments where you're real honest, where you're not just going, yeah, 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 but you're going like, yeah, yeah. How? Be anxious for nothing? Yeah, I get that. How? Oh, but in everything through prayer and supplication. It means I'm actually called to hit my knees when they get shaky. How am I to imitate the faithfulness and patience of those who have received and realized the promise? Well, that's what the preacher is going to answer for us today. And the short answer is this. By having a full understanding of the promises of God. You might want to write that down. By having a full understanding of the promises of God. Our timeless truth is simply this. Believers are able to patiently persevere amid persecution. Because God's promises are an anchor for the soul. So what you're telling me, preacher, that is not only true for the, the church possibly in Rome, made up of Jewish Christians, but it's true for our church today that can see persecution on the horizon, is that in order for me to faithfully and patiently trust in the promises, I've got to understand those promises. I mean, I've got to really marinate in them. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to understand what these promises are, who promised them, and why I should trust them, and how I should trust them. And it is when we approach the text like this, 
that the application just bubbles to the surface. Look ahead to where the author's going to take us. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. You think about an anchor. An anchor holds fast a ship. When being driven and tossed by the winds, it, it holds it in position. Now think about a storm-tossed church in the first century. The persecution, the things you keep hearing, the mockery from your community, from your friends, from your family. Now imagine that comes to Texas. How is our little church going to not just survive, but thrive? I mean, how are we going to feel? Are we going to wake up daily and, and just, you know, kind of like, I'm waiting for this pandemic to pass? I'm waiting for this persecution to pass? Or are we going to see it as not only divinely ordained, but as a divine opportunity to advance God's kingdom? I mean, everyone lo loves to quote Tertullian, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church until it starts talking about us, right? <laughs> hey, that's great for a story. It's great for teaching, but I don't know if I'm ready for this. Well, if you've ever struggled with the sovereignty of God, if you've ever struggled with how to think rightly about the challenges and persecutions and simply even just the circumstances of this world as they press in on Christians... This text is for you. This text bypasses all of the stick your head in the sand, power of positive thinking answers to how to deal with persecution. It cuts to the heart of the matter. It allows churches to grab hold of this anchor. And it basically not only allows us to endure, but persevere through it. Think about it this way. What is the thing that will help us through a spiritual, spiritual category five hurricane? Something that anchors our soul. Amen? If you're taking notes, you might want to write down this outline. Trust the word of the promise, number one. Trust the word of the promise. Number two, find uh, surety. In the sworn affidavit, find surety in the sworn affidavit. And finally, anchor your soul in the hope. We're going to put our thinking caps on this morning. I'm going to stretch us a little bit, but I want to make sure that our uh, thinking is not divorced from our feeling. Meaning the purpose of this is not to make us uh, theologically smarter. It's to make us think rightly so that we feel rightly. And so as you, you, you seek to understand this, have it really inform your heart. Constantly ask yourself, how is understanding this going to change how I actually feel, actually engage, actually navigate these storms of life? Let's look at the first one. Trust the word of the promise. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater... He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so 
having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. I mentioned this last week, but how long was it from that promise that Abraham received when he lived between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, modern-day Iraq, Ur the Chaldees, a pagan epicenter, and God called him and promised him land, seed, and blessing in Genesis 12. We don't know exactly because it says that from there he went to a land which he did not know, which was not his, but he stopped along the way in Haran. And there he spent some time, we don't know how long, a year, two years, until his, his father died, Terah. And then he moved on from there. And it is at that point we know he was 75 years old. Sarai did not have Isaac until he was 100. So this is at least 25 years, maybe 27 years. How long have any of us patiently waited on the promises of God? 25 plus years. Oh my goodness, are you serious? And yet that is the person we are called to imitate. Now there's some capital letters there in verse 14. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Where's that from? Well, we know it's from the Old Testament. So take your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 22. And let's read what this is about. Genesis chapter 22 And of course, if you look at your heading, you can see that this is the time that God asked Abraham to go sacrifice his only son. So before we approach this and read this text, I'm going to start off in verse uh, 13. You're an old man. I mean, you're, you're, old. you're as old as dirt now. You have one heir. You waited 25 plus years for this one heir, and you've been promised land. You don't have any of that yet. Seed, well, I got one. And blessing, I don't have that yet either. And yet God, who promised me these things, has asked me to then go thwart those promises by putting to death my only son. It's hard enough just to keep him alive. He's a young boy, right? Now I'm going to actually kill the promise. Who would do this? We know Abraham would do this. And of course, you know the story, but look how it ends. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. You know what happened. The angel said, stop. And then he provides a substitute. Abraham, verse 14, called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Yahweh, Yireh, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and the sand which is on the seashore. 
and the seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 6. There's two things working here. First, God makes a promise. Genesis 12. I mean, at this point, 35, 37, 38 years ago. This promise is almost thwarted. His faith is put to the test. And yet, what do we see out of Abraham? A deep, abiding trust in the promise, in the Word of God. And we don't see this promise just in Genesis 12. We see it in 12, 15. We see it in 17, 18, and again in 22. And God never lies. And each time He promises His Word. Abraham believed so much, get this, so much in the infallible, unchanging Word of God that he was willing to risk it all. I'm to imitate this guy. He's willing to risk it all. I mean, don't you know he's thinking, but God, this is the only seed. If I don't have this seed, it doesn't become a nation. If it doesn't become a nation, I don't bless the world. And by the way, I still don't have any land. Really? So how was he able to do it? I'm leading us along. How was Abraham physically able to do it? Let me make it more complicated for you. In Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham leaves his servant, grabs his donkey, takes Isaac with him. He turns around and says to his young men, the servants, stay here with the donkey. Sorry, he's leaving the donkey there. Stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and we will, does anyone know? Return to you. I and the lad are going to go over there and worship and then we're going to return to you. But in faithfulness, he's about to go sacrifice his son. How does he move forward in faithfulness, trusting God for the promise and yet do the very thing that will thwart it? The author of Hebrews tells us, chapter 11, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promise. I'm sorry, uh, verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, for which he also received him back as a type. Meaning that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, but believed so much in the veracity and truthfulness of the word of God, that God would raise him from the dead to keep his promise. That blows my mind. We oftentimes read Genesis 22 and we're, we think, well, that's just amazing. Abraham's so faithful. How could he do that? Well, it's because he kind of thought in the back of his mind, this is not really going to happen. No, it's because he trusted so much in the promises of God that God would fulfill that promise, even if it required him raising his son from the dead. Imitate Abraham. And that's what we're called to in Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. That those who died in faith without receiving the promises had no less faith because it was as good as done. Even Abraham died without receiving the promises. Because we see the promises clarified and expanded. That the seed wasn't just Isaac, was it? 
In fact, we know from Galatians, the seed ultimately was Jesus Christ. And in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yet Abraham died an old man, and he didn't own any land except for a tombstone. He had one son, and he hadn't been a blessing to anyone except for maybe his slaves. And yet that promise was so real to him. That promise was so real he could, he could see it. He could see it as though it was really there. He believed it so much that because God said it, it was as good as done. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things, what? Not seen. The assurance of things not seen. I'm so sure of it, I see it. And so he patiently, faithfully trusted and waited. James 2 talks about how his faith believed so much that it was working. His faith had legs. It had arms. It had hands. His faith acted on what he believed. And yet this first century church has begun, has begun to become willfully hard of hearing. And nervous because they see the storm coming and their faith is weakening. And the very thing that feeds their faith and strengthens their faith, they're starting to, to close their ears to it. They don't want to hear it. Why? I had to ask myself that question. Why? Why are they shrinking back? I mean, I think we get that they're scared. But why shrink back from studying the Word of God, from proclaiming the Word of God, from, from, from evangelizing, from, from discipleship? Why? Because somehow you think you have to control to keep the promise. And that's what we miss out on. Yeah, I know God promised uh, that he, he would take care of me. He would never leave me nor forsake me. He promised that one day that, that we would be with our Lord Jesus and we would be like him. In fact, th those, are, those are the two promises for the church, by the way. And there's lots of them, but if you, if you talk about what promises are people trusting in in the midst of persecution, it's those two things. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And one day you will be with Jesus Christ and be like him. Present salvation, future salvation. Those are the promises. And yet you see the storm on the horizon and you're like, uh, uh, this is coming. I need to do something. I need to avoid the storm. I need to minimize the storm. I need to trim my sails. We believe that we have to help God survive. But it's counterintuitive. Because when we try to help God survive and we trim our sails, we start to drift because we have no anchor for the soul. And herein lies the challenge for this little church. And herein lies the challenge for us. Look, we either believe that God cannot or will not fulfill his word. Let's just get it out there. Let's just plain speak. God either cannot or will not fulfill his word. 
This is either true or it's not. If it is true, then we can and will endure patiently, knowing that God will not only see us through, but that one day we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me just make an aside here when it comes... When we talk salvation in our 21st century modern context, we equate salvation primarily with salvation, eternal life in heaven. And that's great. That's great. That's, that's true. But that's a very anemic understanding of salvation. You see, we're being saved from something. What are we being saved from? Judgment. Judgment. A paycheck of eternal death that we earned, that Christ nailed to the cross when he conquered death. We are saved from judgment for eternal life with him. We have to remember both. And these twin truths of those with genuine faith will persevere until the end. And this other truth of drifting has a destination and it's apostasy. Those must be remembered. The way we run the race, the way we finish the course, reflects the validity of our faith. And our faith is tested and tempered when persecution comes. Faith is not perfection, but it is progression. Right? It's not perfection, but it is progression. What is progression? It's standing with our Lord Jesus Christ and with His bride. That's genuine faith. Genuine faith perseveres. And if we can understand that genuine faith perseveres, and if we can understand that salvation is not just something we're saved to, but something we're saved from, judgment, then guess what persecution becomes? Momentary light affliction. You see, I'm taking us a long way around all the bases, but what I want us to understand is, number one, our tendency to shrink back when persecution comes because God either cannot or will not save us, so we have to do it ourselves. And it's primarily because we don't understand the level of persecution as compared to what we've been saved from. We've been saved from eternal judgment. Persecution then becomes literally a slap on the wrist. Momentary light affliction. If we can understand that, then we will not shrink back, but we will hold fast to the anchor for our soul. You know, many of you know... Um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, Canadian psychologist and author, he touts a lot of good ideas regarding personal responsibility, explains things in a really good way, brings some common sense to a, a politically correct conversation out there. And yet he is without a foundation of truth. So his good ideas are not anchored in the bedrock of God's word. And if you know anything about him... <clears throat> You know that the last few years he's been plagued by chronic, debilitating anxiety. So much so that he got addicted to psychotropics. Nearly killed him. And he had an interview last week where a guy was talking to him about Jesus Christ. 
And he got choked up and he could hardly finish. I want to read you what he said. We're talking about Christ. Now, this is a guy who is agnostic. It's very clinical, very factual. And he said, quote, I am amazed at my own belief and I don't understand it. I don't know what to make of it. It seems to me oddly plausible, meaning Jesus Christ. I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. And what does he mean by that? It means that as, as, he's, as he's smart enough to actually deal with the reality of his emotions, that if there is a God, then he is held accountable. No one has to tell him that. If there is a God, he is held accountable. That's, that's general revelation. And he knows by his own life that he deserves judgment. It's too terrifying to imagine. But how opposite for those of us who know Jesus Christ and have bowed the knee to him and whose sacrifice has covered our sin. We have escaped judgment. There is nothing terrified, terrifying about it because it's past. The reason we cannot endure persecution is because we have an anemic view of salvation. And the reason we don't want to hear the word of God when persecution comes is because we think we have to take over the reins from God. And yet God's word never changes. And as he promised Abraham over and over and over and over again, and he hardly saw it. He hardly saw the fulfillment of the promise, yet he trusted. Why? It was as good as done. Because of what Jeff said this morning. Because when God makes a promise, can it get any, any more sure? You know, I had a, teach, uh, a chance to teach on Titus this week to a bunch of pastors. And I want to read you the opening verse from Titus and just see how all this comes together. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Isn't that rich? I'm going to write a letter. And you write about God, first thing. God cannot lie, promised, it's a done deal. What's he going to challenge Titus with? A lot of heavy church challenges but he anchors his soul in the promises of God. Now, this would be enough here. We could finish the sermon here and say, we trust the word of God. We, we imitate those who have trusted the word of God, the promises of God, and we could end there. But God goes above and beyond as he always does. Look at our second point. Take courage in the sworn affidavit. Verse 16. For some men, I'm sorry, for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more 
to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, circle that, two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Let me tell you what's going on here. The Word of God is true. Period. Period. We don't need to go any further. It needs no confirmation. It needs no affirmation. We don't even need to say, the Bible said it. I believe it. I mean, the Bible said it. (laughs) It's true, right? Yet God in His mercy takes an extra step. And He draws near to Abraham and to those who would hear about this. And He takes this supreme truth of His spoken promise and He adds an oath to it. Now, why do we add an oath to our words? To give credibility, right? I mean, you know, remember this when you were a kid. I I remember very distinctly in third grade, the the worst liar in the school said something fantastic. And of course, none of us would believe him. But then he said, I swear on my mother's grave. Whoa. And I literally remember telling one of my friends, it's like, yeah, I don't believe anything he says. But he swore on his mother's grave. Forget the fact his mother was still well alive, okay? He, he threw that card down. It's like, we've got to believe him. He wouldn't do this if it weren't true, right? We get that. We, we understand the penalty of perjury. We swear on a Bible. We swear in a court of law. We know jail time's coming if we lie. And yet God doesn't need to confirm his word, but he draws near to Abraham and says, hey, let me provide even more assurance. I'm going to swear by myself. We have to understand, why would he swear by himself? Because he's already the highest there is. There is no one higher, but it's even more than that. To swear an oath by yourself holds you accountable, holds you in judgment per se. He is the universe's top judge. To swear by himself absolutely 100% guarantees it. Why? He is the only unchangeable thing in the universe. Everything will change. You and I will change. The mountains will fall into the sea. Creation will be burned up. Everything will change except one thing, God. And his promise. Isn't that interesting? For someone who might have a doubt, might wonder, it's like, I trust the word of God. It's even made more sure. Why? Because of the character of God. Because he has never changed. He will never change. It is done. Now I want you to think about that. There is no one higher. He is bound by his word. Now look at our third point. Anchor your soul in the hope. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. There's three things there. Sure, steadfast, and one which, anch- uh, which enters within the veil. 
where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Security. Stability. Safety. Are these really terms that we would use to describe undergoing persecution? Didn't that seem kind of oxymoronic to you? Why would you use those terms? Persecution. Ah, my world is being turned upside down. I'm losing things. There's pain in my life. There's lots of uncertainty. Someone evil is trying to control or hurt. Sure, steadfast. Anchor within the veil. Forerunner in Jesus Christ. This this hope is not wishful thinking. It is sure. It is steadfast. It enters within the veil. What does that mean? Well, I want you to think about this. this. This anchor that holds the church steady. Think about this picture of it going through the veil. In fact, think about it this way. Metaphorically, when Christ ascended into heaven, it's as if he tied this massive chain to the, the church in this boat. Okay? And he takes this massive, metaphorically, 25,000-pound anchor. And when he gets up to the throne room of God, and he has become our eternal high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, he takes that anchor and he wraps it around the throne. That is what we have. And it pierces the veil. What is the veil? The veil was, was the, uh, the woven tapestry that separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the rest, from the holy place. And the Holy of Holies was representative of where God lived. His throne room. And the high priest was the only one that was allowed to go in there. And he could only go in one, one time a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it was with great fear and trepidation. And yet Christ goes through as the forerunner, rips the veil, puts the anchor, and says, my children are secure. That's the feeling. We are steady. Oh, it may be a small boat. It may look kind of rickety sometimes. We may have some people hanging off the side. But I'll promise you that chain and that anchor are secure. He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And one day you're going to be with me and you'll be like me. The one thing we don't see here is that who's pulling us in? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so practically building off this last point, How do we as a church perceive persecution? Let's just start there. Let's just start to get our our minds wrapped around what is coming. How do we perceive persecution? Is is it something that's um, taking us by surprise? Taking God by surprise? Is it kind of like Satan gets a, a few jabs in, kind of a yin and the yang concept that we just have to endure? Or is it more of what we see in the book of Job 
where nothing comes our way until it first passes before the throne and gets God's okay. How do we as a church plan to persevere? Have we gone there in our mind? Have we had conversations in our small group for when, not if, we can no longer stay at our current position? How we're going to provide for one another? What might be another source of income? How I'm going to have to um, find a new place to work? How I'm going to feed my family? What if we can no longer meet? Are you okay because your elders will not close these doors again. They may be closed for us, but are you ready to meet at different places, secretly at different times? Are you going to quit evangelizing like these Hebrew Christians did? Or are you going to be willing to risk? You know, some of us may need to, uh, I would say all of us, may need to climb up Mount Moriah and be willing to set our reputation, our career, things that we think we would never lose on the altar and say, you know what, Lord, even if you take these things, I know your word will remain true. I don't know how, but like Abraham, I have no doubts. You will provide, you will care. Finally, how do we patiently wait, enduring, and yet thrive? Those, those seem like two different actions that are juxtaposed to one another, but they're not. How do we bear up under patiently and yet thrive in the moment? Many may see persecution as doom and gloom, but I think understanding that, that when we die, we simply pass from this life into the presence of our Lord and Savior, and judgment will never touch us, will change how we think with regards to persecution. A long view patiently awaits, not bucking up because he's not on our timetable. We trust his timing. Listen to George Guthrie explain about uh, being in God's waiting room and what our response should be. Quote, Wait in quiet patience, not reeling because you are under the affliction, but blessing your God for it. Never murmur against the second cause as the children of Israel did against Moses. Never wish you could go back to the world again, but accept the case as it is and put it as it stands, simple and with your whole heart, without any self-will into the hand of your covenant God, saying, Now, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. That's that patiently bearing under in God's waiting room. But then at the same time, it is living large for Christ in the moment. Do you guys realize that the Lord has divinely ordained for us to be born and live at this time? And, and this generation, this time has some exciting, unique challenges that we have not seen in a long time. We certainly have not seen in America, right? And with it comes the opportunity to see God's kingdom by His grace, according to His timetable, rapidly advance. 
in ways that we could not have affected. And we get to take part of it. If we could see things that way, and if we could see that, that while this storm is ahead and it looks bad, what's on the other side? A shore that is beyond our wildest imagination. Storms don't last forever. He will see us through. Why? Because we got a chain with an anchor. And it's a straight shot. We're going to have to batten down the hatches a little bit? Yeah. We're going to get a little wet? Yeah. But we don't have to worry about drowning, do we? And we don't have to worry about the boat sinking, do we? And we know that he has already prepared a place for us.